Good morning. Glad to see everyone here today. So I want to, uh, I want to start by talking about that, uh, that practice that we've been encouraging everyone um, to, to be eating a dinner with the family together at the table and trying to avoid distractions and doing that at least once a week. A few of you have talked to me about that and mentioned that it's been beneficial or that it's what you do every night already. And that's, that's always interesting to me, the different ways that we do things, like have a dinner. We're getting ready, though, to dive into what's going to be a year-long um, practice that we want to practice together, a spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline. And so as we're entering into what we're calling the phase one of this, the first phase, what we want to do now is for the months of March and April, we want to actually make a challenge, and we'll talk about it a little bit each week. But the challenge that we want to give you is this. So you've made this practice of eating together uh, once a week. For those of you that live alone, hopefully you have time to, to, you've hopefully sat down, you know, with the whole of you by yourself uh, every night for dinner. But what we're going to do now is we're going to add an extra person. And so what we want to encourage you to do is at least once a month, at least once in March and at least once in April, and as many times as every week, we want to encourage you to invite someone else to dinner, someone that you're comfortable with, someone that you've had over for dinner before, a person that you know very well. And we want to encourage you to do this just beyond what's comfortable, right? And so for some of you, if if once a month is is easy, try for more often than that. If if five or six times is is, is easy, we want you to try for once a week or even more. But we want to make this part of the heartbeat, part of the rhythm of how you do dinner. And we're going to take this practice and expand it. And as anything happens, as, as you have any good experiences or, or, or you think of anything or the Lord puts anything on your heart in the midst of this, we'd really like to encourage you to, to share that with us. We're going to be diving into, though, as we conclude this, this sermon series on eating with Jesus, we're going to be diving into a very special passage today. It's Revelation chapter 19. And you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We will have the scripture in a bit. Um, I do want to go ahead and apologize to Karen. I realized as I was sitting there in that last song, I didn't tell her that the first two slides or three I'm going to need before the scripture this morning. So she's going to get to jump around, and that'll be fun. So if that's, uh, if that's not the way it's supposed to be, that's my fault, not hers. We're going to be talking about the wedding supper of the Lamb today, the, the banquet that's at the end of the book of Revelation. When the bride of Christ and he are wedded together and they celebrate this with a meal. And meals at weddings are are always interesting things. They're always always memorable occasions. The meal at my wedding is particularly memorable. Um, As I, uh, uh, we didn't have a full meal, right? We had like appetizers and things like that. But then then comes the the moment that happens in most weddings where you do the, the cake cutting, right? And Lisa, my wonderful, wonderful, lovely bride, said to me a hundred times, you will not put cake in my face. You will not put cake in my face. Because she knows I have this tendency toward honoriness. And so, because it's her wedding day, I think I'm not going to do that. So I feed her the piece of cake like I'm supposed to. And she promptly takes hers and smashes it in my face (laughs) and laughs maniacally. And gleefully at what she has done. That's, that's Lisa Tinnervin, ladies and gentlemen. 
So, we're going to be talking about the wedding at the end of the book of Revelation today. And the single sentence sermon summary for this morning is this. We live in a hope-filled story. We are beloved of Jesus and promised an eternal place at his table. We live in a hope-filled story, beloved of Jesus, and promised an eternal place at his table. So we're going to look at this passage, and then we're going to, we're going to draw out three specific truths from it. Now, before we dive in, we're going to be talking about the joy, the celebration that happens after Babylon is destroyed. Now, I want to talk about what Babylon is in the book of Revelation, because otherwise this story can seem kind of odd to be celebrating the destruction of a city. So Babylon, in the Old Testament, it's frequently an opponent of God's people. Babylon is twisted throughout the history of the Old Testament, all the way through the story, from the book of Genesis on. It's complicated, but here's what you need to know. Babylon was an opponent of God's will in his people. It was a powerful city and the center of a powerful empire. And several prophets talk about it at length. We actually have a, a picture of Babylon, of ancient Babylon. This is not a photograph. They didn't have those back then. But Babylon was a massive, powerful, well-guarded city. And it was at the heart of a powerful empire. Babylon had, had its own gods and was frequently opposed to our God in the Old Testament. The idolatrous practices of Babylon frequently bring them into conflict with God's people through the Old Testament. I don't want to dive into specifics there, but it is all the way through, again, from the book of Genesis on. So that's, that's ancient Babylon. Now, both Isaiah and Jeremiah, they prophesied the destruction of Babylon by the Lord. So, so I want you to get this. Babylon is bad. Right? It's a bad city, the heart of a bad empire. Now in chapter 18 in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, who's writing this down, he records another prophecy about Babylon. Now, in the book of Revelation, there's, there's, places are interesting because they're not usually just the places themselves. They're usually symbols. So we have to ask the question, what is Babylon, this ancient, powerful city that's opposed to God's will and his people? What is it a symbol of in the book of Revelation? Now, stay with me here. There's a, you know that idea of a person that has like an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other, both speaking and trying to influence? We see that in cartoons, right? I don't know if we have any Simpson fans here. Homer with his better and not better nature, one on each shoulder. And the idea behind this is that there's, there's two influences. One influence speaking good thoughts and, and, and trying to pull you in a good direction. And the other influence trying to pull you, pull you in an evil or a bad direction. Cultures are, are kind of like this, right? Every culture works in the same way. God is at work in and through his people in every culture in which the church exists today, right? And the evil one and his demons and the sinfulness of a humanity are on the other side pulling on it to corrupt it. And that happens within our society. As we look around at American culture, we can see that there is goodness in it, right? Going to church in most places in our country is considered a good thing, and it's, it's kind of part of the culture. There's good 
in American culture. But we don't have to look far to see that there's also bad in American culture. And these, these, our culture is kind of pulled in both directions. In Revelation, Babylon represents the corruption of human culture. Human culture at its worst. It's idolatry and materialism and systemic injustice and murderousness and opposition to God and the totality of sinfulness in a fallen and corrupt culture. That's what Babylon represents. Sometimes it's a specific culture, but mostly it is this general idea of corruption inside of it. That's Babylon. And in chapter 18... Right before our passage this morning, an angel comes to John and he gives him a look at what's going to be happening inside of heaven when Babylon is judged and torn down by God. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. You can follow along with me or just listen. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen. Hallelujah. Now, there's something important here about Revelation 19. There's actually lots that's important here about Revelation 19. But, but one of the things that it does is it builds this robust picture of salvation. This, this rich imagery about what salvation is and what it means. And it starts here in verse 1. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. In Revelation, salvation is about God's victory and his glory. Whenever someone comes to Jesus, heaven rejoices because another piece of God's victory has been won. You see, you and I, we're the battlegrounds upon which a great contest is being fought a war is being waged. That's why your actions, your commitment to being transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus, that's why that is so important. You are a battleground. The Lord calls. The evil one tempts. And they are not equal. The evil one is not equal to the Lord. That's not why there's a contest. There's a contest because the Lord has allowed it for his purposes and for his glory. But we are the battleground upon which that war is waged. So here there are these three songs that all proclaim that Babylon's been destroyed. And that this is a cause for all of heaven to celebrate. Now as we, as we think about salvation as, as God's victory, and as we, as we hear these celebrations about the fall of Babylon, you need to know this as we move forward in Revelation 19. The end of the story is coming. Not just the end of the story of the chapter that we're in. Not just the end of the story of the, the book of Revelation. But the end of the story that all of us are living in the midst of. All of us are caught up in. The salvation story in Revelation is coming to a close. And we're right at the cusp of it here. So verses 5 through 10. 
Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell to, my, or at this I fell to his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. And that sounds amazing, doesn't it? These are big verses. The story is, is, is rich and full. And it's a story that all of us are part of. And it's building this incredible picture of what salvation means. There's a meal, a banquet, and the church has two roles in it. We're both the bride and the guests. Now, there's absolutely no way to do justice to to a, a picture, an image, a metaphor like this in a single sermon. It's the kind of picture that, if you like this kind of thing, you can just think on and meditate on and never get to the bottom of the way that that can bless you in your relationship with God. You'll never run out of insights that you can gain from it. But while I can't do it justice, we do need to dive in and talk about it a bit. So there's three things I want us to take from this. The first one is this, is that at the wedding, we are his guests. We are his guests. It's always interesting watching couples decide who to invite to weddings. Sometimes there's one who just wants to invite everybody, and the other one just wants to invite next to nobody, and they have to figure that out. With Lisa and I, it was interesting. Because there were like 3,000 people that her family wanted to invite to our wedding. And I had like 50. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but whatever number she says, it's probably not true. It was more than that. But the, the, the difference was insane. And I remember thinking like, we do not need every single person we've ever met at our wedding. The church can't hold all these people. And we, we kind of went back and forth about this. I'm, I'm, I'm not being kind to my wife. She was much more reasonable than I'm making her sound. But... This, this, this difference in priorities shows up, and as couples kind of figure out who to invite, one of the things that comes to the fore for them is how many people do they consider dear and precious to them? Because when you're planning your wedding, you can't let the people that are dear and precious to you not be part of it, not be invited. And for some of us, we have this long list of people that we love and that we care for, and we just, we just can't think of, of excluding any of them. For others, it's smaller. But the only people that have to be invited are the ones that you really, truly care for, the ones that mean something to the family. As individuals, you and I, each one of us, are guests at Jesus' wedding. 
And that means something important. That means that every single one who belongs to him is invited. And every person has an equal seat there. There's no status. There's no greatness. There's nothing that gives us a better seat than someone else. And that means you. You. Here. The one who thinks that that there's something wrong with them and that Jesus can't feel about them the way he feels about others. The one who thinks that they can't be that loved and accepted and wanted and welcomed by God. You, you're invited. Your name is on his list. He loves you and he wants you at his wedding. For some of you, the best application you can make of this story today, the very best one, is to look at yourself in the mirror over and over again, whether literally or metaphorically, and to tell yourself again and again that regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you see when you look at yourself, you are loved by God. He wants you at his wedding. You're important to him. You, the one who thinks that that can't possibly be true, You're precious to Jesus. So that's the first thing that we can take from this story, is that each and every one of his people is precious to him. The second piece is this, is that we are his bride. Collectively, the church, we are the bride of Christ. The church is one, unified bride of Jesus Christ, and each one of us are part of that bride. And one of the things that that means is that each and every person who belongs to Jesus needs to matter to us. And think, if you just think for a moment about what this means about how we treat or should treat one another, I can tell you that one thing that is going to usually alienate you from someone is if you mistreat their loved ones. Right? I know if someone mistreats Lisa, unless it's me at the pulpit, right? No, that's a joke. But if someone mistreats Lisa, I have a real tough time. There's been times in her, in her professional life or in other things where there's an argument and there's some, there's some mistreatment that's, that's going on and it's just so difficult for me to imagine a relationship with that person when they've mistreated my spouse. And most of you who, who are connected to someone that deeply, whether it's a, a parent, a child, a spouse, you can resonate That when someone offends the one you love so dearly, it strains the relationship. Now, I'm not saying that if you mistreat other Christians, Jesus will disown you. I don't mean that at all. But think of how dear each part of his bride is to him. And then ask yourself what that means about how you should treat your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, on the surface, this sounds easy, right? Of course, we should love one another. Of course, we should be good to one another. But you know that one person? You know who I'm talking about, right? That, that one person? I'm not going to say who it was. Someone just raised their hand. I'm not talking about you. That one person that you have such a hard time with, that one person who just gets to you, and maybe it's more than one. Maybe it's that one trait or quality that when someone has it, you just can't see past it. You think, well, I'm glad there are other people in the body of Christ because they can love this person. I just need to stay away. That person, that person's precious to Jesus. That person's part 
of the bride of Christ. And Jesus cares how you treat them. Jesus cares how you show them love. We don't get to just avoid. We don't get to say, that person's outside of my ability. That person's too much. Jesus can't expect me to love them. Because he does. And so for some of you, the very best application today that you could have is to go home. Think about who that person is. Think about what is going on inside of you to make that person so difficult for you to love. And then make a phone call or send a text message or find a way to reach out and love that person. That would be an excellent, excellent application today. So the first part that we can take from this story is that we are his guests. Jesus loves each and every one of us individually. And the second part is that we are his bride. And here's the third. We have a reason for hope. This wedding banquet with Jesus gives us a reason for hope. There's this passage in Romans chapter 8. It's one of the most difficult in the entirety of Scripture. It's Romans 8.18, and some of you undoubtedly know it by heart. It's where the Apostle Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I remember being younger and just thinking that that was an easy and exciting verse to come across, but actually it can be a very difficult and painful one. I remember being younger and just being so very foolish, and I'd like to say I was really young, but we're talking Bible college days, we're talking 20s, and when I knew someone was going through a hard time, I would feel this this desire in my heart to give them this verse. Whenever there was hardship or suffering, I just felt like a person needed to hear this verse. Someone lost a loved one or suffered a tragedy, I had a verse for them. It was the thing I could say in the funeral line as we went through. And at some point, I realized that it isn't actually helpful to minimize what a person's going through in the midst of the going through it. When you tell a person, you know what, in the big picture, sufferings aren't even going to matter. In the midst of grief, that's not, that's not helpful. Now, there's, there's something that we all need to know about times of grief. And it's that we have, we tend to have this desire to make the other person feel better. We're made uncomfortable by someone else's pain, and so we need to say something. And a lot of those things are just not helpful. Please hear me. It's okay to say nothing. It's okay to just be present. Don't say a thing that ends up doing more harm than good. But when a person is in the midst of pain, telling them that in the grand scheme of things that their pain is small, It can shame them, because it certainly doesn't feel small to them. Now, and hear me, that's not always the case. Is there a time when it's time to talk about how how the suffering that a person is going through can be a time when God is close? Is there a time to talk about the future glory that waits? Absolutely there is, and it takes wisdom to know when that is. But it's not a weapon or a thing to make ourselves feel better. So then... This verse eventually became very painful for me. When Lisa and I lost our our first baby, I remember coming across this verse in devotions and thinking, how in the world? How in the world could this be minimized by something 
so far off in the future? How do I think of this as small in the grand scheme of things? Sometimes there's, there's, there's tragedy that strikes and the suffering is so great it's just before you and you can't get it to stop being before you. And I've thought of this verse often as Lisa and I lost the next three as we both lost beloved members of our family. And there are times when the grief can be so difficult, it's so overwhelming, it's difficult to put into words. And when I think about this verse in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. When I think about the picture of the heavenly wedding banquet of Jesus and his bride, at some point, at some point in the midst of all this, I realize something precious. That underneath the pain that comes with grief, this is truly the most beautiful picture anywhere in the Bible. Jesus invites us to his table as his guest and his, as his bride with a promise. He gives us a promise. It's a promise that every single broken heart will be mended. It's the promise that all things lost will one day be restored. It's the promise of reunion with those who have gone to glory before us. And it's the promise of everything wrong being made right. And that is beautiful. I can't help but think about saints who are no longer here and the joy at the banquet of seeing them again. I think about Roger. I think about seeing Roger again, going up to him at the banquet, the wedding banquet for the lamb and saying, Roger, how are you doing? And he's going to look at me and say, still kicking. <laughs> and even in hardship, even in hurt, even in pain, that doesn't minimize suffering. It promises an end to it. And it promises not just an end to the suffering, but one day when everything lost will be returned, everything broken will be restored. That is amazing. That is exciting. That is a message to find hope in. So when you think about this story, I don't know how often you read the book of Revelation. In my experience, people either read it a lot more than other books of the Bible or a lot less than other books of the Bible. I don't know when the last time you came across this was. My hope is that the next time you do, a few things are going to stand out to you. This is a story that promises you that Jesus loves you. There's not something broken or defective or wrong or twisted inside of you that sets you apart from everyone else in a way that Jesus just can't love or accept that is a lie told to you by the evil one, and it is not true. Jesus loves you. He wants you at his wedding. And more than that, you're part of his bride, and so are all the people who believe in him. And we're called to love them as he wants us to love them. And third, in the midst of the darkest day, the hardest time, the loss or the grief that overwhelms, there's a promise that one day you'll be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
you'll see Jesus who knows everything you've gone through. He'll smile. He'll tell you he loves you. You'll be there for him and he'll be there for you. And all the hurt will be gone. And that is a reason for hope. Pray with me. Father God, you are so, so good. When we think about sharing a meal with Jesus, this is the only one that I want to always, always have in mind. The meal that comes at the end of all the hardship. The meal that comes when the doubts and the struggles that happen inside all of us are put away are healed, and we're with you forever. Lord, we pray that you help us to keep it in mind when we're struggling to love us as you do, when we're struggling to love your bride as you do, and when we're struggling to realize and remember the hope that we have, that we are able to live in the midst of, that you have given us, call your wedding supper to mind. Lord, and let that be a time of renewed conviction, of an ever stronger desire to love as you do, and a hope that cannot be overcome. We pray all these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.